Uh, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, we're back in the New Testament. And it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, so you should be able to find it. Also, um, while you're turning there, we have some devotionals on the table in the back. We have this one called The Eternal King Arrives. This is for adults, so I encourage you to pick one up. And then this one, the Jesse Tree Daily Devotions for Children. And so encourage uh, everyone to get one. We have enough for everyone, so please just grab one after the service. Um, and that would be great. The, um, so appreciate that. Also, a quick announcement. We've done a uh, uh, sort of a, a quick plea to support the Deacons Fund. A number of you have done that. And uh, we're past Giving Tuesday now, but if you have not had the opportunity to do that, it is never too late to support the Deacons Fund. So I encourage uh, you to do that. So we'll be in the Gospel of Luke today, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 56. So a long uh, passage here, but uh, a very well-known one. Listen carefully as this is God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to the Gospel of Luke this morning to experience this epic drama of Jesus together. Sometimes we take the Christmas story for granted. Keep us from being complacent about the coming of Christ. This Advent, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to see what you have done and what you will do. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to believe. Teach us how to live. Build our faith. Draw us near. And help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the words of this gospel today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, I got to do something special the other day. I got to pray for a young woman that God is using in powerful ways. As most of you know, many years ago, I pastored a small church in Enterprise, Alabama, and she was a member of that congregation, and she was 12 years old and in middle school at the time, and today she is Senator Katie Boyd Britt, representing the great state of Alabama, and I got to pray with her and for her, and I prayed for God's protection for her and that he would keep her faith strong, as Washington, D.C. is a town that has been known to crush the faith of so many. I ask God to keep her faithful and to give her the wisdom necessary for the high calling the Lord has placed upon her life. And at one point, I asked God to keep Senator Britt's faith strong. And then I stopped and I said, Lord, keep Katie close to you. And she squeezed my hands and started to cry. It took everything I had not to just lose it right there. I asked her to sign my copy of her new book, God Calls Us to Do Hard Things. And in it, she wrote, Pastor Dave, you're such an important part of my childhood memories and my foundation in the Lord. Thank you for your support and encouragement and for pointing this little 12-year-old towards him. I am truly grateful and I promise to continue to seek the Lord and the word in all I do. Keep bringing others to know him. We need it more than ever. You never know who is in the congregation. Love you, faith, family, freedom, and the next generation. God bless Katie Boyd Britt. And then Katie asked me to send a special message from her to all the young women in the church. 
I've been really struggling to remember her exact words, but I think I have the gist of it. So first question, how many young women do we have? Let's go ages 10 to 20 or close to 10 or close to 20. How many fall in that general category? Okay, the 10 to 20, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Anne-Marie put her hand up, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, okay, some that are kind of on the margin, so um, a, a bunch of folks. So this is for you from Senator Britt. She says, hang on to the faith, cling to Jesus. The world is going to tell you what to do, what to say, what to think, how to act, even who you are. But all of that really comes from Jesus. So stay close to him, and who knows what he is going to do in your life. For nothing is impossible with God. And I couldn't help but smile. For that last phrase, for nothing is impossible for God, comes from our text today, Luke chapter 1, commonly referred to as the Annunciation of Christ. It's a story that starts with another 12-year-old girl in another small out-of-the-way town. The setting for the Annunciation must have drawn shock and amazement from first century Jewish readers because the angel Gabriel didn't go to Judea, the heartland of God's people and the center of God's work for centuries. He went to Galilee. It's a land that's the subject of abiding contempt because its population is composed of all kinds of people from all kinds of places, of all kinds of races. It was, in many ways, a first century melting pot, a small version of what America is today. And of course, by skipping Judea, Gabriel also skipped Jerusalem and the temple, the most holy place in all Israel. Instead, he goes to the lowly home of a lowly girl in a lowly town, Mary, who lived in Nazareth. In the world's eyes, Mary wasn't much to talk about either. She was too young to know much of the world or to have accomplished anything yet. Most secular histories report that she was between 12 and 14 years old. We don't know for sure. As with most poor peasant girls. She was probably illiterate, and her knowledge of scripture would have been limited to what she had heard in the synagogue or had memorized at home. From all indications, it was expected that there would be nothing extraordinary about her life. It was expected that she would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel far from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And one of the most astonishing things about this story is that the greatest news ever proclaimed came to the most humble of people. God preferred a lowly girl from a lowly town. And yet this astonishing thing happens to her. She is chosen by God to be the mother of God's son. You understand why the Bible says that Mary is the most blessed of all women. Mary is the only woman of the billions who have ever lived be chosen to carry and give birth to and nurse God's son. 
For that alone, we would have to consider her most blessed. She was the one, when the baby Jesus was first placed in her arms, looked at him and said, So, this is what God looks like. She probably didn't realize it at the time, but hers was the human face which the face of Christ most resembled. Think about it. Jesus' face could be seen in hers. As we look at the announcement of Jesus' coming birth, we must accept the essential spiritual lesson of Christ's coming and of the gospel, and that is the Lord comes to needy people, those who realize that without him they can't make it, those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual failings and sin. But before we get too far in today's story, I want to go over some of the background very quickly because it's essential to understanding the book of Luke. Let me encourage you to read along during the week. We're going to spend the rest of this Advent season in Luke 1 and 2, Matthew 1 and 2, and John 1. So those would be good passages to read in these weeks before Christmas. So what's this book about? Luke is the author of this book, the third gospel, and also the book of Acts. They're written as volumes 1 and 2 in the story of Christ and his church. In these uh, two books, you'll see that Luke writes more of the New Testament than anyone else, even Paul. And since he's given us more of the New Testament than anyone else, it would be helpful to understand the big picture. And as I read through the book, I tried to discern the major themes of the book. I came up with four. You may come up with different ones, but this is what I found. First, there is an overriding sense of the sovereign plan of God at work in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is not an, oh gosh, look how they screwed everything up, I better do something kind of tale. It's a carefully planned out sequence of events that demonstrates a power above and beyond the routine circumstances of life. Luke is concerned to show us that the whole world ran according to a single plan laid out by God. Second, there is a constant emphasis on Jesus having come for a specific purpose. That is, he is the Savior of the world. Luke shows us this extraordinary life is not a happenstance coming together of random factors. It is a life breathed by God. And a life breathed by God is one that sets the pattern for everyone else. The exclusive claims of Christ as the unique Son of God, as God's revelation as located in Christ alone, fly in the face of a worldview that sees all attempts to reach God as legitimate. He challenges assumptions and expectations throughout the book and forces the people he encountered then and the readers he encounters now, to consider who he is and what he did on his terms as Savior and Lord, and respond accordingly. Everything Jesus does is designed to highlight this unique point, that he is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. Third, there's a constant emphasis on the gospel. And the gospel is the message of new life in Christ that changes people and offers eternal life. Luke explains how Christ revealed that the way to God is through the sinners, that's us, 
through the sinner's recognition that one has to turn to God for help. And then he makes clear that the way to God is through Jesus. And then finally, there's an emphasis on the truth. Luke writes so that you can be confident in knowing that what you're taught is the truth. In fact, that's exactly what he says at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The more we examine the people in this gospel, the more we will see that they are just like us. Their problems and attitudes concerning money, uh, sin, anxiety, hope, community, rejection, vengeance, pride, humility, questions about God mirror all the same questions we face today. And Luke shows us how Jesus addressed these topics. And he makes it clear that we can come to know the answers by coming to know Christ, who is truth incarnate, truth in the flesh. And in such an age as ours, where people struggle for identity and worth, what better message can there be than to know that you can know God and share in his promises? What's the book of Luke about? People coming to know Christ. To sum up the book, it is the person of Jesus and the nature of God's work through him to to deliver us from sin that takes center stage. It shows the sovereign plan of God, the Savior through whom that plan takes place, the gospel message that explains that plan, that it is all true, and that those who place their faith in Christ can rest confidently in that fact. And it all begins with the story of a young girl named Mary. So first we discover an angel speaks to Mary. An angel speaks to Mary. (coughs) Remember, it has been a dark time for the people of Israel. They haven't heard a prophetic word from God for 400 years. Not since Malachi promised the coming of Elijah. The spiritual leaders were shackled by tradition and corruption. And their king, Herod the Great, was a tyrant. But no matter how dark the day was, God has always had a remnant of devoted and faithful people. And one of those people was a young girl named Mary. So we begin with Gabriel and Gabriel's approach. Remember, Gabriel has already come to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah had been overwhelmed with fear, and Gabriel struck him speechless until John was born nine months later. Now, 500 years earlier, he had appeared to Daniel and terrified him as well. To say the least, meeting Gabriel could be very intimidating. You have to get over the idea of the small Christmas angel, the hummel that's on the mantle. Uh, Angels in the Bible are big and scary, and they usually have swords, And most people, when they see him, it's face in the dirt. Please don't kill me. So we're not thinking this nice Christmas angel, everything is wonderful. We're thinking, this thing showed up and I'm terrified. So Gabriel shows up to Mary. There's nobody from nowhere. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, remember, Mary is about 12, 13 years old. Unlike us, she is unread and inexperienced. Unlike us, she didn't live in a wealthy suburb of a prominent city. Unlike us, she didn't look at a screen that could keep her instantly up to date with the latest events happening around the world. We live in a time where we expect information to be at our fingertips. The amount of information that we're able to access this afternoon, Mary couldn't access in a lifetime. So having an angel appear in front of her would have been beyond explanation or understanding. Which is why most people were terrified when Gabriel showed up. It's an event beyond their ability to rationally comprehend. And the Bible says that Mary was greatly troubled. Her humble position is only matched by the humble character she displayed, which made her the ideal woman for God's greatest gift. Think about it. A lot of women here have had children, a trend that will probably continue. Now imagine that one night, your husband's downstairs watching football. An angel shows up in your bedroom and announces that you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And when the angel says, the Lord is with you, he is speaking literally. And not only that, from this day forward... Every single thing you do or say is going to be carefully watched by everyone else for all eternity. This may not be the blessing you've been praying for. You have to understand what's happening here. It happens one time to one woman for all history. God skips Judea and Jerusalem and the temple, goes to this despised region, to a nowhere village, to a lowly young girl with the news of the single greatest event in human history. Which is why even Martin Luther, the fire-breathing reformer of the church, said this about Mary, O Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. You are are the crown of them all. But Gabriel's not done yet because we still have the announcement. Picking up at verse 30. Because if Mary wasn't shocked before, she surely is now. She is going to be the mother of the Messiah. Gabriel's words here are based on 1 Samuel chapter 7, which is commonly known as the Davidic covenant. Starting at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's no doubt about this announcement. Mary hears it clearly. You are going to become pregnant. You are going to name your son salvation, which is what Jesus means. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And his kingdom is forever. Now, to be fair, Gabriel has some explaining to do. 
So we move on. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now the explanation itself is simple. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. But it is not easy to understand. The key word here is overshadow. That's the word used in the Old Testament to describe God's presence in the sanctuary. It's the word used in the New Testament to describe God's presence at the transfiguration of Christ. It's the word used to explain how Christ, the Son of God, came to live in Mary's womb, and it's the word used to explain how Christ, the Son of God, came to live in your heart. Is not the coming of Christ to Mary a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ to you and to me? If God the Holy Spirit wants a new birth to happen, then a new birth will happen, whether it's a physical birth for Mary or a spiritual birth for us. And Mary's response to all of this is one of the strongest statements of belief found in the entire Bible. She could have said, we would have understood it. Forget it. I'm a nobody from nowhere. But she doesn't. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Could you say that? I am the Lord's servant, and I am willing to accept whatever he wants. May everything you have said come true. It sounds hard. I'm sure it was. But as Katie would say, God calls us to do hard things. It also sounds like someone who had great faith. And that is certainly true of Mary. But if you think about it, just how different are her words from the ones that you have said many, many times? Maybe without even thinking about it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps that's something that Jesus learned from his mother, the nobody from nowhere. The Bible doesn't say that, but it makes sense. There's clearly a lesson that Mary knew well. Maybe because she had a good mentor, another woman named Elizabeth. And so we see that Elizabeth speaks to Mary, starting at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of our Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then the very end, verse 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 
So we, we pick up Mary's story with this decision to visit her relative Elizabeth. Two women with a lot in common and yet so very different. Both women were pregnant. Both pregnancies are miracles. Yet one was an unwed pregnant teenager, still a virgin, while the other was old enough to be her grandmother and yet was six months along. One young, one old, both pregnant. They would have made a strange sight walking together. But clearly they have become soul sisters, both excited at the sound of the other. And they're to become innocent co-conspirators in this divine plot to save the lost. One would give birth to John the Baptist, who would announce the coming of the Lord. The other would give birth to the Messiah, the Lord who has come. But before we pretend that everything here is just fine, we have to remember both of them will live to an older age than their sons. John is beheaded by Herod Antipas, and Jesus is crucified by Pontius Pilate. Both men die in their early 30s. We also here have the first fulfillment of New Testament prophecy. The angel Gabriel said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And here we see him respond while still in the womb to the sound of Mary's voice. This prenatal example of listening for the coming of the Lord would foreshadow what John's ministry would be like. John himself said in John chapter 3, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John began waiting and listening for Jesus, the bridegroom, even before he was born. Then Elizabeth speaks to Mary and how encouraging her words must have been. I imagine the Bible doesn't say, but common sense would seem to indicate that explaining this pregnancy was probably pretty hard for Mary. Uh, perhaps because of the doubt or the disbelief, the looks and comments she must have gotten, that she decides to leave Nazareth for Judea and spend time with Elizabeth. We don't know. We're not specifically told. But what we are told is that upon her arrival, she is greeted with words that essentially say, I believe you, and you are blessed because you believed God. And I can only think that Mary must have been relieved. Finally, someone believes me. It would have been an interesting three months for Mary. Elizabeth encouraging her and honoring her, letting her know that no matter what anyone else says, she is the mother of the Lord. And of course, watching it all in the background is Zechariah, who is still unable to speak. And then we see verse 56. She stays there three months, probably until the birth of John, long enough for the first announcement of the angel to be accomplished, and then she goes home to wait for the second announcement of the angel to be accomplished. Although little did she know she would have to travel back to Judea to see it happen. So it's a lot to take in. It could have easily been overwhelming. But Mary responds to all of this in a remarkable way. She sings. And so it's here that we come to the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And it is in the Magnificat that we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, for it is the Spirit speaking 
through Mary. In stunning silence, Mary and Elizabeth regarded one another, and with this majestic calm, Mary begins to sing. It's a great song. So good, in fact, that many critics have claimed that Mary couldn't possibly have sung this because it's too good. It's too theological, too full of Old Testament allusions, too poetic, too subtle, too structured, too perfect for a young girl from Nazareth. After all, this song either quotes from or alludes to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, whole section is from Psalm 98, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And the critics would be right, except for one thing. They vastly underestimate, or they discount altogether, the Holy Spirit who inspires Mary. Remember, all scripture is inspired by God. This song is part of scripture. Therefore, this song is inspired by God as well, or it wouldn't have made it into the Bible. And I've divided the Magnificat into a few sections. Each is simple, each is profound. The first section tells us what God has done, verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So we start, we see that Mary praises the Lord. She rejoices in God, her Savior. She acknowledges his salvation, which indicates that she knew she needed to be saved. She is a sinner who needs a Savior, and she's rejoicing because that Savior is conceived in her. It happens because God noticed her, his lowly servant girl. We see that Mary is gentle and lowly, two words that Jesus would later use to describe himself. She magnifies the Lord because what he has done uh, in her and to her. And again, this is not unlike what he has done to us. Christ is born in our lives. His life flows through us. And we begin to not only look at God in a different light, but think of God more than ever before. Mary is a physical model of a spiritual reality. She recognized that she's blessed, not with the ordinary blessings that come from God over the course of a lifetime, but with a blessing that revealed God's grace, which would last for an eternity. And she understood the significance of what God had done. She recognizes his power in doing it. She says, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And in her song, she praises God for his attributes. She worshiped his mighty power, the power that brought forth the virgin birth. She honored his pure holiness, the holiness of his sinless son. She magnified his mercy for sinners. She praised his faithfulness and keeping his promises. This is real worship. She doesn't dwell on her own circumstances, but rejoices in the character of God. Mary believed God, surrendered herself to his sovereign plan, and praised him, all without knowing the outcome in advance. At this point, she has no knowledge of what is going to come. She doesn't know about the miracles or the parables. She can't foresee the healings and the changing of heart. She's unaware of the crucifixion and the resurrection. All she knew is that God was at work. 
And that was enough. But she doesn't stop there. She goes on to commend what God is doing. Verse 50, what God is doing. In the second stanza, she names several groups who the Lord's work has affected and says that God's mercy is extended to all who fear him. Picking up at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. A common Old Testament theme is that God's mercy is everlasting. We see here the Lord is especially merciful to the helpless and the humble and the hungry, to those who are often downtrodden and discouraged. I'm sure many of them doubted the Lord would ever reveal himself on their behalf again. And yet Mary sings not only that he will, but that he does. He has not forgotten his people and he has not forgotten his promises. And she sings to remind us all that what God says, God does. He promised to be merciful. And it seems that somehow Mary foresaw God's mercy in her son. She saw the Lord turning everything upside down. The weak dethrone the mighty, the humble scatter the proud, the nobodies are exalted and the hungry are filled. The grace of God often works contrary to the ways of the world. And as we look this morning at the response of Mary to these remarkable events, we again, we have to accept the essential spiritual lesson of Christ's coming. And that is the Lord comes to needy people, the hungry. The Lord comes to those who realize without him they can't make it, the helpless. The Lord comes to those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual failings and sin, the humble. The incarnation, salvation, and the kingdom of God, in a word, Christmas, is not for the proud and self-sufficient. It is for those who are hungry, helpless, and humble. And that's the essence of Mary's song. That God is great and holy and exalted, and out of his graciousness, he exalts the humble. And then at the close of the song, we see what God would do. What God would do. The Reformed theologian, Dr. Robert Raymond, calls this section of Mary's song one of the great theological statements in the Bible. Mary is a covenant theologian here. Listen again, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The incarnation of Christ is the fulfillment of ancient promises. The Christmas story is the story of the Bible. The birth of the Lord Jesus was promised to Abraham and brought to fulfillment through Mary. This morning, that covenant is a wonderful promise to you and your family. God has blessed us with the opportunity to enter into his family by trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And those blessings are for now and forever. The blessings extend from Abraham and Isaac to Elizabeth and Mary to you and me and to all those far off who he will call, who will hear and believe. Think back to the meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. What they shared was unique. These two women were the first people in the New Testament who were filled with the Spirit. These women were chosen to bear the children of promise 
And they're the first to know that God has come to redeem his people. This visit isn't just about Elizabeth and Mary, but it's also about their sons, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, the one called by God to announce the coming of the Christ, and Jesus, who was the Christ, the Lord of the New Covenant. So when Elizabeth met Mary, the covenants connected. And Elizabeth, this godly older woman, was the first in the New Testament to confess her faith in Jesus as Lord. Mary is also praising God for what he would do in Christ. You see, with the conception of Christ, the great reversal has begun. The choice of Mary proves that her song spans the past, present, and future. It's about what God has done, what God was doing, and what God would do in the days ahead. And as I wrote to you this week, the story of Jesus moves with the feel of an epic drama. It's almost too grand to keep fully in view. We're going to spend the next 12 months, starting today, going through this story, walking with Jesus a year with the Savior. Many years ago, I decided I would preach through one of the Gospels every five years, just to remind us what and who this is all about. And now it's been many years later, and I've preached through all four Gospels. So this time I thought if we just walk through the story of Jesus chronologically, mostly from Luke and then Matthew, we'll get to experience this epic drama of Jesus together one more time. To understand what Luke is teaching us about God through this story of Mary is really important. Since the better we know Christ, who he is and what he's done, the better we can understand his calling and his purpose in our lives. This means Luke forces each one of us to think about who you are and what God wants you to believe and what God wants you to do. He wants us to see that Jesus' story is not only about him, but also about us. These texts reveal God at work, and we can see how God approaches people and reaches out in power and humility to lift us up and bring us into his presence. And God takes people who are outsiders and makes them insiders. People involved in a relationship with the God of the universe, people who are hungry, people who are helpless, people who are humble, people the world knows as followers of Christ, people like you and me called to live a life that looks to God because he has poured out his grace on those of us who've received forgiveness and new life in Christ. And Luke tells the story of how Jesus revealed that grace, died to provide it, rose again to bestow it, and will return to establish its presence over all creation. And the church, humble and hungry, must show what such grace looks like. In our love for God and in our love for our neighbor. And it all starts with Advent. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son, 
Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Heavenly Father, we get excited about Christmas. We know this is a story not just about Mary, but about all of us as well. We know that you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. And so we ask that during this Advent, Christ may be exalted in our lives and in our words. May the stories of Christmas, the stories of God's grace in the lives of people just like us, ring out during this glorious season of the Incarnation. Teach us these things, enable us to believe these things, give us the desire to rejoice in God our Savior. I pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.